Now we're at the Statues and Stories Hour on statuesandstories.com with Adam Levinson. This is yours truly, Mac on the Rock, and Ed Vidal. Thank you for joining us here on Blink Radio Key Biscayne. Adam, how are you today? I am doing fantastic, and uh, do we want to mention what today's date is? Today's date is almost Constitution Day, yep. isn't it? So on the 17th is Constitution Day, which is the date that the Constitution was signed in 1787. And that's why today's discussion is going to be an, an homage to and to pay respect uh, that we live in the greatest country in the world and have a, quite a constitutional that uh, we want to learn about tonight. So the purpose of today's show is to explain, and I'm going to be mentioning some of the books that we have online, but the, the, the book that we're going to be uh, fleshing out today is, is the name of the show, How to Read the Constitution. So for those who have a constitution handy who are listening, then I take it out. For those who don't have a constitution handy, they're not that hard to get. And of course, it's all available online. And I want to start with, uh, with that first question, which is, and you don't have to answer it, but uh, for people who are listening, uh, the question is, A, how many words are in the constitution? Is it 10,000 words? Is it 20,000 words? Is it 30,000 words? Or is it 4,543 words? Oh, come on, that was a hint. <laughs> so the answer is, it's a short document. The Constitution is a relatively small document that doesn't include the amendments. And as we know, there were 27 amendments to the Constitution. When you add those 27 amendments, it comes out to 7,591 words. So the Constitution is not a voluminous document, and we'll explore today how to read it, how it fits together, the structure of the Constitution. And I'd like to mention the, the books that I have with me that went into the preparation of the show. Uh, so some of these you're going to agree with, some of them you're not. Uh, so the first book is The Supreme Court by William Rehnquist, who is a former Chief Justice. I disagree. <laughs> Never mind, I'm just the kidding. Next oh, that's right good. Next to Rehnquist is by Justice Stephen Breyer, called Making Our Democracy Work. I really disagree. And the next book is called How to Read the Constitution and Why. And this is a brand new book out in 2019. I don't know how you pronounce her last name, Kim Whaley. And she's a professor. She's also a commentator on CBS News and a legal expert. And the other book is uh, American Dialogue by Joseph Ellis. So this is uh, the materials that went into today's show so we can understand how the Constitution fits together. And uh, before we got started, anything else you want to ask before we get under underway? Um, I, I can't, no. Uh, if you can figure out, uh, Ed, then please let me know. But I can't figure them out. So I was going to ask you, but I don't. No, you're fine. Go ahead. All right, yeah. and by the way, feel free to jump in when you want to slow me down, because otherwise, once I start talking about the Constitution, and of course, we'll also talk about the history behind the Constitution, but I think it makes sense to start with some of the core principles in the Constitution, because as we laid out to you, it's not a very detailed document. It's a framework. Some might call it a blueprint. I would actually disagree. It doesn't go into enough detail to be a blueprint. It's a structure, a framework. So here are some of the core concepts that we've talked about over the last couple months. The first is popular sovereignty. So these are things that are embedded in the Constitution. What is popular sovereignty? And popular sovereignty, and sovereign means the king or the ruler. So we have popular sovereignty, which is that the people, we the people, and that's how the Constitution starts. We the people are the sovereign. So the Constitution is channeling power and uh, directing power, and that power comes from we the people. And we can talk about different ways that power is, is recognized. Uh, the second concept is limited government and the rule of law. What does that mean, limited government? That means that uh, the government is not the one that uh, grants rights. Uh, the government is the one that is restricted. And the government is the one that uh, everyone has to follow the law. And it's limited government. And we'll talk about how it's limited and why that's important. Including the government following the law. Then that's the, the component of the rule of law. So those two go nicely together. So it's limited government. And it's also the rule of the law. So the government follows the law. The people follow the law. The politicians follow the law in theory. And uh, this is, again, built into the structure. No one is above the law. Uh, third concept. 
concept here is separation of powers. And when I mention these concepts, you're not going to see the word separation of powers in the Constitution, but it's in the structure of the document as you go through. So what is separation of powers? And maybe this is a good point to mention, there are seven articles in the Constitution. I'm not including the preamble, because the preamble is the introduction, and everybody is familiar with the, the very lofty and the, the heroic language, the, the, the critically important language, uh, the aspirational language, some might say, that starts with the people in order to form a more perfect union, establish domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare. So that's the beginning of the preamble. So the, the preamble is uh, not the first article, but what is the first article? That's the first article deals with the power of Congress. So that's Article One, and we'll, we'll mention real quickly Article Two is the power of the executive, and Article Three is the power of the, of the courts, which is the judiciary. So you don't have the word separation of powers in the Constitution, but the powers are separated among the different articles in each of the different branches who are checks and balances on each other. And that's the next concept, just to tease out, that the Constitution recognizes that the reason you don't have to worry, or at least hopefully don't have to worry about when uh, one of the branches getting too powerful, is that the other branches are there to step in and to balance and to check. If you get a king who tries to become a monarch or a court that tries to do things that aren't permitted, the, the different branches check each other. And the last concept embedded in the Constitution, and again, you don't see this word in the Constitution, but it comes out in the Tenth Amendment, and it's in the structure of the Constitution, is federalism. So here, I should probably ask you guys to tell me what federalism is, but the, the basic idea for federalism is that you have shared power between the federal government and the states. And uh, there are certain things that are reserved to the states. The federal government has limited power. Over time, the federal government has expanded power. We can debate about that. But these are the, the like I'm calling them the five core concepts popular sovereignty, limited government with the rule of law, separation of powers, checks and balances, and federalism. So that leads us into the, the body of the Constitution. And we talked about Article 1, Article 2, Article 3. So if anyone has a copy of the Constitution handy, handy flip over to Article 4. And this is an overlooked section of the Constitution. It's not terribly important. But Article 4, which is relatively brief, deals with, people call it one of two things. They call it relations among the states, how the states work. And the disposition of, of lands, no? For sure, and how new states will come in and new states will be treated the same as old states, that all the states are treated equally. Now, of course, representation will vary depending upon the population of the state, and that's in Article 1, telling how the House of Representatives is set up. And by the way, that's it's interesting that you mentioned that, Manny, because the Constitution had multiple compromises when it was written in 1787 during that summer, and, and listeners know that starting in the March time, sorry, starting in the May time frame, all the way through uh, through September is when they sat in that in that, that chamber in Philadelphia in Independence Hall and wrote the Constitution. And that was a series of compromises, including that you would have the Senate and you would have the House of Representatives, which is bipartisan, I'm sorry, bi bicameral, so two houses in our Congress, unlike in England, which is a parliamentary system where it's all one house, one parliament with a prime minister. We don't have that. We have a chief executive, the president, who is separately elected in a national office as opposed to those who are elected in Congress, but it went off on a side. So we're talking about Article 4, and Article 4 is mainly two points. It's the relation among the states, and Article 4 also deals with, and I'm going to, I don't know if I want to read it to you, but, but basically how the states would work and how they fit together. And did you have any other comments, by the way? Did I hear anyone mention anything about Article 4? No. No, but I would say that uh, I think you're totally right on emphasizing federalism, but I would also point out that the 17th Amendment uh, neutered the states in many respects in that they, re they were removed from the federal system. And, and maybe we'll have time tonight to talk about some of the amendments. Okay. And, uh, and, and you're 
right that over time it's important to understand evolution, particularly the Civil War, that plays an important role. By the, by the way, that was a big, big issue with the previous caller on our other show. We got into it uh, about how important it was to repeal the 17th, and that's why that's hot on Ed's head. That is a perfect segue, by the way. So from Article 4 is relations among the states, and the other concept is Republican form of government. That's the other way people refer to Article 4, that it guarantees a Republican form of government. What does that mean, a Republican form of government? That means that we don't have, um, first of all, the citizens aren't voting on the laws. We're choosing in a Republican form of government. We're choosing our representatives. And we can talk about what that means in electoral college as a way that you have a Republican form of government, not Republican meaning Democrat or Republican, but the Republican structure. So that's in Article 4. Moving now to Article 5, and this is why I said what you mentioned was a good segue, because Article 5 and Article 6, let's do 5 first. Article 5 deals with the amendment process, and uh, and you two are experts on amendments. Uh, But Article 5 talks about how you amend the Constitution. And later in the hour, when we talk about the different justices and different approaches on doing constitutional interpretation, Article 5 factors in, because some will say, if you want to amend the Constitution, Article 5 tells you how to amend it. Others will say that it's a living document, and we can talk about Breyer, we can talk about liberal versus conservative. But Article 5 is how you amend the Constitution. But as we know, we've only had 27 amendments. In fact, I would say it's less than 27, because the first 10 amendments were all done at the same time. So that's the Bill of Rights, for those who uh, don't know the exact structure. So the Bill of Rights refers to Article, or when I say Article, Amendments 1 through 10, are the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, we all love the amendments. First Amendment, everybody knows. Second Amendment on this station, everybody loves the Second Amendment. Um, and we all know that all the way from 1 to 10 is the Bill of Rights. And um, my point is that there were 27 amendments, but since all 10, the first 10, went together in the Bill of Rights, we've really only had 17 plus 1. So we've only had 18 times that the right. Constitution's been amended in our 200-plus year history. So Com- well, compare that with the great state of Florida, which has a Constitution adopted in 1968. We have almost around 80 amendments, and some of those amendments cover two or three different topics. It's interesting that you mentioned the Florida Constitution, and let me flip things around a little bit. The Florida Constitution, if you look at the structure of the Florida Constitution, remember, the Article One of the U.S. Constitution is the legislative branch. Mm-hmm. Neither of you want to mention real quick how the Florida Constitution starts. What's Article One of the Florida Constitution? Isn't it the Home Rule Charter? So Article One is the Declaration of Rights in the Florida Constitution. So Florida. Well, that's Florida, that's consistent with many states. So Florida starts off right up front, the very beginning, with the Declaration of Rights. And it sets forth all these fundamental rights in the Florida Constitution. And I wanted to mention, because I heard some of the last hour when I was driving, when you were talking with Caleb about deference, and we don't have to go into too much of the details, yep. deference cases and deference doctrine, but the Florida Constitution was amended, which happens pretty frequently, which was your point, was amended in 2018, and this is going to be Amendment 6 at the time when it was adopted by the voters. And Amendment 6 limits deference by the courts to administrative agencies in Florida. Yep. Yep. Unlike the Chevron deference on the federal level, in Florida, the Florida Constitution was amended, and you can no longer have, the courts will no longer defer, and if uh, folks want to check it out, I'll, I'll tell you where it is in the Florida Constitution. Yep. It's Article 5, Section 21, and I'll get some Latin to people, but it's a de novo review now, so agencies, and I don't want to spend too much time on it. No, actually, go into detail, because yeah, and, and, and the, audience, the, the audience wants to know. The new, uh, uh, Caleb's organization, the New Civil Liberties Alliance, was involved in doing that. There you go. Yep. So the Florida, my point is that the U.S. Constitution has been limited, amended a limited number of times. The Florida Constitution, because the, 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 
that the Florida Constitution has been amended multiple times, including in the last election cycle. Mm -hmm. So the issue that was being complained about two hours ago on your show, which was deference at the federal level, deferring to legislative agencies, federal agencies, has been addressed in Florida, which I will point out is positive in some respects, it's less positive in others, but everything has advantages and disadvantages. So we talked about Article 5, which is how you amend the Florida the U.S. Constitution, and then Article 6. Article 6 talks about um, the main point for Article 6 is supremacy, that uh, when you compare the, although we're a federal system, federalism, with the 50 states and the federal government, at the end of the day, federal law, as determined by the U.S. Constitution, is a supreme law of the land. States and members of different state governments, etc., have to recognize that at the very top of the pyramid, based upon our structure, and we fought a civil war over this, is federal supremacy. So the law of the land is federal law if there's a conflict, and hopefully you avoid conflicts between federal law and state law. But that's Article 6. And then the last article, which really doesn't apply anymore, is Article 7. And Article 7 just talked about how the Constitution would get ratified. And let's talk about that real quickly. So the quick answer on Article 7 is that remember, because it's just a statute of stories now where we talk about history, the, the background was that in 1787, the Articles of Confederation were a failure, and the states were sort of coming apart at the seams, and the states were taxing each other and limiting their trade, and there was a concern that the 13 colonies were going to break into three different regions, the north, the middle colonies, and the south, and it would only have been a matter of time before you had internal rebellions and the, the country would have broken apart was the concern. Uh, people were protesting, and you had farmer rebellions and tax revolts. Yeah, basically, stay tuned, because that could happen again. Only this time, it'll be the east, the center, and the west. And then the south would be just Texas by itself. Well, they'd probably take Oklahoma with them. But, uh, yeah, that's quite possible. The country... Well, you know, uh, Adam, one interesting thing about the U.S. Constitution is that I think it was amended, or it was adopted or ratified by conventions of states in states, so that it wasn't like the old legislature voted on it, a new... Uh, convention in each state was uh, uh, voted upon and assembled to to approve or disapprove the Constitution. And by the way, the only time that of the different amendments, of all 27 amendments, the only time that they were approved through conventions of states was uh, when you repealed prohibition. All the other amendments have been through, um, you know, through state legislatures. Uh, the only one that was approved through a convention process was the repeal of prohibition. Good. Uh, uh, well, that's, you know, um, that, that's because the old state legislatures might not have approved it. You know, they there were a lot of uh, blue-haired old ladies who were teetotalers, and they did not want demon rum. So, you yeah, know, and also have, and also religious men as well. Right. Those are so those were. Um, that's so we actually had, we actually did the convention of states. As, they had conventions within the state. Each state had a convention to, to approve the amendment. Okay, and you're saying that. Uh, the others was just the legislature Yeah, the itself. state legislature approved them, yes. Now, uh, Adam, I've always wanted to ask you, and I'm glad that this came up, where in the, where is it implied in the Constitution that the joint resolution that comes from Congress, if the amendment were to come from Congress in a joint resolution, as in 16 and 17, where does it say that it has to be voted upon verbatim? In other words, you cannot alter it. You have to vote it yay or nay. Uh, it, I could never... I don't know. What, what's the answer? I'm not going to know the answer to that question. I'm going to answer with getting back to the framework. So the quick answer is the Constitution, as I refer to it, is more of a framework for how the pieces fit together. It is not a very detailed set of rules. Right. So you're not going to see that level of detail in the Constitution. So that has to be the case law and statutory when you get into this level of weeds. But let me do some homework on that, 
into more detail about the specifics of that process. And then this gets, I think, to one of my larger points. And I want to refer now to Edmund Randolph. And he was one of the founders from Virginia. And he was one of the founders who stayed all the way to the end. And he was one of only three who did not sign the Constitution. So you're not going to see Edmund Randolph's name in the Constitution. And uh, one of the reasons he didn't sign, and listeners can think for themselves, if the guy stayed all the way through the end, was very active and wonderful ideas, but he decided not to sign. Why would Edmund Randolph, who was the governor of Virginia at various times, not sign the Constitution? And the answer was he wanted a Bill of Rights. And with one of your other callers, as I was driving, I heard some of the conversation. Uh, you talked about um, you know, how do you interpret the Constitution in terms of did they need a Bill of Rights? And I, and I wish I could have called to talk, to talk at the time, but they reminded me of a Hamilton quote. So Hamilton, and I'll, I'll read you what Hamilton said, Hamilton did not think we needed the Bill of Rights. And this is exactly what Hamilton's words now. He said the Constitution is itself in every rational sense and to every useful purpose a Bill of Rights. So he understood the Constitution as providing all rights that aren't otherwise granted to the government are protected by the Constitution. But of course, in order for it to get ratified through the different states, they eventually agreed to the Ten, Bill of, to the Ten Amendments, which are part of the Bill of Rights that was drafted by Madison. So, so what's my point here? My point is that you don't see hyper-detail in the Constitution because it's a, it's, it's a framework. It's a very loose set of guidelines. It's only 5,000, actually the exact number is 4,553 words. And I wanted to now refer you to this Edmund Randolph quote, which I think is wonderful. And that's one of the things that we do on the Statutes and Stories website is, you know, I'm a lawyer. I am not a trained historian. I don't have a Ph.D. And I like to point out that I don't think anyone needs a Ph.D. in history. You read the history and you enjoy reading it learning from it. So what did Edmund Randolph say heading into the Constitutional Convention, which he never signed? And uh, he said two things which I think are worthwhile to understand what the Constitution's purpose was. So he says in the draft of a fundamental Constitution, because he's describing what would go into the process of preparing, he says in the draft of a Constitution, fundamental Constitution, two things deserve attention. One, to insert essential principles only, lest the operation of government should be clogged by rendering those provisions permanent and unalterable which ought to be accommodated to times and events. So that's the first thing Randolph says. The Constitution should only be essential principles, which is why it's only 4,500 words. And he doesn't want to get clogged up and rendered permanent on things that are, that, you know, he doesn't want things to be unalterable when it needs to be able to accommodate to the times. That's Randolph. The second thing he says is to use simple and precise language. And many, this gets to your point about the exact procedure for an amendment. Uh, who's to say that the, that the language can't change when it's going through the ratification process, and that's your issue on the 16th Amendment. So, again, Randolph is saying that he wants, to, when they're drafting it, to keep this in mind, team, when we're meeting over that hot summer in Philadelphia, to use simple and precise language and general propositions according to the examples of the constitutions of the several states. So they built upon the founders uh, what they saw from, remember, we had 13 states that got together under the Articles of Confederation, and now they're trying to improve the Articles and replace the Articles. So what's the point? The point is that you can't find in the Constitution hyper-detail. It's not going to be there. And that gets to the role of a judge when it comes to interpreting the Constitution. And here uh, I'm going to try to uh, give arguments on different sides, and people will agree and disagree. But, you know, well, I mean, we also got to consider the actual practicality of reproduc- reproducing the document to be able to distribute it to 13 states. I imagine... They didn't go through the printing press like we would normally think. I'm, these were handwritten, duplicated 13 times, or no? So that's an interesting question. So the, the reason why the Constitution wasn't signed earlier than the 17th is, be, 
they, they brought it to the printer and they printed it, and then the printed copies went to all the different states. So the 17th of September of 1787 was the date that they brought in uh, the copy, and then they all signed it that day, and then it was printed, and then it went, and went to the different states. Well, it was my understanding they were never together all at once at any given time, that that painting that was commissioned by the by the Congress, the first official painting that we see, which is Washington City at the at the table and all all the framers there, that actually didn't happen. They all came in horse and chariot at different times. So uh, then they came and went because it was basically right. three. So months. nobody was physically together all at the same time. Madison. Madison is one of the guys that stuck it out and took notes for the Constitution. Uh, Hamilton's an example of someone that he was absent more than he was there, and that gets to we can talk about from other reasons. Because he had to make a living, you said. He, That was uh, Benjamin. the Supreme Court. 
Supreme Court, so and you're allowed to go in. It's a public oral argument, but they're not televised, and uh, there are now transcripts, so you can read the transcripts. But uh, it's not something that's a televised event. So unlike Congress, where you can go and watch C-SPAN, the, the Constitution doesn't talk about what should be done at the Supreme Court. It doesn't give a procedure for how the Supreme Court should go about doing its arguments. So they, they follow precedent, and things that have worked for them, they stay with it. Here is, in a nutshell, and we can do more of this if you want later, on Fridays, and they may do it two times a week depending upon how busy they are, but it's mainly on Fridays, uh, that all nine justices sit together in a room with a rectangular table, and as people may know, when you're arguing before the Supreme Court, if you've seen the arguments pictures, uh, the Chief Justice sits in the middle, and then those next to the Chief Justice, uh, the closer you are to him, the more seniority you have, and the justices on the right and the left, the far ends, not based upon politics, right or left, conservative or liberal. It's based upon seniority. So those who are the, the newest justices are on the further ends of, of, the, of the bench, if that makes sense. Uh, so the question is, how do they sit at that rectangular table? And the answer is the chief justice is in the middle, and sitting across the table from him is the second senior judge, so the justice who has the most seniority, along with the chief justice, and then the other judges or justices, because if you're on the Supreme Court, you're a justice. Or if you're on a state Supreme Court, you're a justice. So similarly, it's arranged by seniority. So I like to say that I wish I could be a bug on the wall when the Supreme Court gets together on Fridays, because that's when they discuss with each other how they are going to rule on cases. And here we're really talking about Article Three. So you won't see this in Article Three, but uh, in Rehnquist's book, he describes what the process is. And interestingly, there are no staff, there are no lawyers, there are no assistants, secretaries. I don't know if they've now started using recorders. I don't think they do. Uh, and it's the job of the most junior justice to take the notes of these judicial conferences. So they start and they go one at a time, starting with the chief justice, and they go down by seniority to talk about how they want to vote and their reasons. And no one talks until all nine justices explain what their position is. Um, and that's the way that they decide what the result of the cases are going to be. The other thing is when they walk into that judicial conference, they shake each other's hands. They are very cordial and collegial. They don't argue with each other, uh, and they have a professional discussion. And uh, most of the decisions have already been made before they walk into that room. And the interesting situations, which are rare, are where a judge actually changes their mind. But apparently most of the time they've already made up their mind that it's not – would think that these are passionate back and forth conversations, but uh, they're very collegial. And I encourage folks, there are they're good uh, videos online of Scalia talking to Breyer uh, because over the summer they have time and they often will go on uh, to college campuses and do other kind of public events, public radio or otherwise. So there, there are lots of examples where I can hear the justices talk about what the process is, which uh, Justice Rehnquist wrote about in a book called The Supreme Court. All right, so um, I'd like to now, if we can, talk a little bit. We talked about the structure of the Constitution. Uh, we talked about how it is not a very detailed document, but it's more of an outline of how the government would work. And um, I want to give now the schools of interpretation, the different approaches. And Ed, do you want to mention, or Eddie, or Mandy, do you want to mention uh, what, what Chief Justice, not Chief Justice, but what the former Justice Scalia, who passed away about two years ago, uh, what is the name of his school of thought or his approach to constitutional interpretation? Well, I should uh, first confess that he was my contract professor at the University of Chicago. I did not know that. Yes. You, you were a student of, of um, Supreme Court Justice Scalia. Yes, yes. In 1978, and then I also took administrative law, and he was a very popular professor, a very uh, vivacious lecturer, and I asked a lot of good questions. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, 
And what he says, his school is known as the originalist school. And what he says is that uh, the Constitution is like any other contract. It's a legal document, uh, and it should be interpreted the way the parties to the document, the, the framers of the Constitution, the way they intend it. So, for example, if you're uh, a, a electric power generation plant and you sign a contract with a public utility for them to buy your electricity, uh, so so long as you produce it at a certain quality and level, you don't expect them to say, oh, you know, instead of paying you $10 a kilowatt, we're going to pay you $8 this year because things are down. No, the, you expect the contract to be enforced and carried out the way it was originally intended and the way it was written. And I think that's, I think, um, uh, that's certainly my preferred interpretation. Uh, the it's called the originalist school because it's the way the contract was originally intended to be interpreted. Right. So, and I think that's, a, that's an excellent description of that approach to constitutional jurisprudence. And this is whenever a justice is appointed, and you have the Senate Judiciary Committee interviewing and questioning the justice. This gets into the underlying work that goes behind the scenes. And many, this was one of your questions earlier about you know how the cases get decided and. What does the Constitution say? And if it doesn't give you a definitive answer, how do the judges read into the Constitution to come up with an answer? So I'm, I'm going to give you the counter-arguments, and I'm not going to tell you if I agree or disagree, but remember, I have a couple books in front of me, one of which is by Breyer and one of which is by Rehnquist. And this is the debate that goes on at a very high level of constitutional law. So, so this is the underlying issue, which is, for example, that there are provisions in the Constitution which are not, many of them are not defined at all, and they're, 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 some would argue, are very broadly written. So, for example, cruel and unusual punishment. The Constitution does not define, and I'll just give some examples, what's cruel and unusual punishment. The judges have to make, or the justices have to make that decision, unless the, the legislature or the Congress passes a law. But even there, their law can be challenged, so ultimately the judges have to interpret what does cruel and unusual mean. And Scalia would take the position that whatever cruel and unusual in 1787, that's cruel and unusual, and it remains cruel and unusual based upon that 1787 definition until such time as we amend the Constitution. So that's one example of some of the language which is not defined. Republican form of government, we, we talked about that, but that was Article Number 5, that guarantees the Constitution a Republican form of government. What does that mean? Here are some other just very broad concepts, privileges and immunities of citizens. That's the 14th Amendment, or unreasonable searches. And whenever you talk to an attorney, attorneys make their living trying to argue over and litigate what's reasonable, what's unreasonable. But the Constitution uses very open-ended language when it comes to the, to the Fourth Amendment for folks. When you're talking about searches and seizures, the seizure has to be, the search has to be reasonable. It prohibits unreasonable searches. So let me give some examples of the, the cases that have gone to the U.S. Supreme Court. And those who are not of the originalist viewpoint will point to technology. So, for example, uh, the, the case is the Kylo case, K-Y-L-O, if I'm spelling it correctly, versus U.S., thermal imaging. So I'm going to ask Manny, how would you decide this case, that the, when, when we have new technology, police now can point a scanner at a house. It looks like a radar gun, and they can see through the walls of the house, and they can pick up heat, for example. And they can tell if there's heat in the house that would be consistent with the hydroponic um, you know, marijuana growing. They can also tell how far people are standing away from the wall. So the question in that Kylo case, which is fairly recent, I think it's just two years ago, whether or not you need a warrant to use some of these thermal imaging scanners in order to look at a house. Do you need a warrant for that? Is that prohibited by the Fourth Amendment? And don't answer yet. Let me give you another case, dealing with GPS trackers. So police 
uh, have been using GPS trackers or little devices that they'll put under a car, and uh, they'll sit back for a couple months, and they'll see where is that car driving. And I'll tell you what the arguments are. On the one hand, the car driving around is in public the entire time. So if they were just following the car, which they could do in broad daylight, or if they had a camera in a, in a whatever you want to call it, a, a drone, for example, you'd be able to follow the car. So the question that went to the Supreme Court, again, approximately two years ago, is would you need a GPS tracker to track under a car, or can you put it under the car without getting a warrant from a judge? So, Manny, let me ask you, to, and there's no right answer here, because this has to do with the interpretation of what is an unreasonable search or seizure. So if you were deciding the case, and all the Fourth Amendment says is that, and I'll, I'll read you the exact Fourth Amendment so I'll be precise. So the Fourth Amendment says as follows. It says, and I'm skipping not the whole thing, but that no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath and affirmation. And it goes on to say, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. So you have the right against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not, shall not be violated. So many, if you were deciding this, which is what these justices had to do two years ago, would you allow thermal imaging without a... Well, I would find it to be unreasonable search only because the heat only, the the imaging of heat only in uh, implies hydroponics, but it doesn't imply pot. Someone could be growing anything in there, and therefore the person has the right to privacy. Uh, no one should be able to be knocked on his door because they might be just growing orchids. <laughs> they could be growing anything other than weed, and therefore... Unless there's visual evidence that it's weed or if there's visual evidence of, um, you know, people coming in and out of the house on an unreasonable uh, amount of going in and out. Um, when there's hyperactivity going in and out, like, you know, 10, 15, 20 people an hour going in and out. Now you're talking unusual uh, uh, experiences. So, yeah, so that would be get a warrant. Yes. Now, the GPS tracker, that's completely unreasonable. I mean, you can just track me just because you feel like it. Get a warrant. That's what they're doing in Coral Gables. They have 300 cameras, and they're uh, keeping track of every just about every car. Well, in, in the camera case, I said it earlier today. It really doesn't tell you. It only tells you that the car committed no, no, a violation. No, it's not just a red light camera. It's camera everywhere. All right, but unless they can prove that I'm driving the car, the car itself can't break the law. It has no, to they, be the uh, driver. Sometimes they have pictures of the driver. Yeah, but you still got to prove it's me. The Absolutely dog uh, sticking his head yeah, out my the brother, window. My brother looks just like me sitting in a car, okay? Here is the counter-argument, and then I'll ask you what your opinion is. The counter-argument is the car is driving out in public. The counter-argument is the police need tools to fight against increasingly sophisticated drug dealers and other terrorists, right? And uh, sometimes you don't have time to get a warrant. And the Constitution, here's the, the other point, Manny. Constitution doesn't use the word privacy. It says no unreasonable searches and right. seizures. And I'm going to try to make the point about the arguments both sides. So I erred in, in mentioning privacy. Yeah, it's a different... But, uh, and we'll talk about penumbras. So, uh, so, Ed, do you agree that you should need a warrant to yes. do a GPS tracker or Ab the thermal imaging of a house? Absolutely. Warrants. Get a warrant. And okay, don't so uh, give me a fake dossier to get it. So two years ago, the Supreme Court in the Kylo case, and there was another one, uh, that, that the GPS trackers determined that, yes, the 
interpreted the term unreasonable searches and seizures to be violated by that technology. And here, this gets to the larger point, that this is the job of, the job of a judge, is to interpret this language, which is broad. And I want to read you now from Rehnquist. In 1770, he's, he, this is a quote from him, in 1976, and he's admitting that the framers of the Constitution wisely spoke in general language and left to succeeding generations the task of applying the language to the unceasingly challenging environment in which they would live. Uh-oh, that means living document. Not no, good. no, no. We'll get to that, but this is Rehnquist. And Rehnquist <laughs> is a conservative appointed right. by Rehnquist. They're Rehnquist. setting us up. Right, so he goes on to say, uh, where, the found, I'm sorry, where the framers used general language, they gave latitude to those who would later interpret the instrument to make the language applicable to cases that the framers might not have foreseen. And there's no way, back in 1776, that people would have imagined uh, cell phones and uh, you know, whether or not you need a warrant in order to, let's talk about pinging, right? And I'm not a criminal defense lawyer, but you can track someone with their telephone based upon the pinging from the cell phone, the cell phone towers. That's how they catch everybody. So, and that's a very important tool, by the way, when they're trying to track somebody who's been kidnapped and all kinds of issues. Um, so, so I'm just quoting Rehnquist for the proposition that the Constitution does use very general language. Uh, let me quote you now from Justice Story, and this is Ed's point. Uh, Justice Story, this is in 1845, points out what the danger is. And Manny, you mentioned living constitution. The danger, if the judges interpret too broadly, and if they interpret their own personal opinion when they're making an interpretation, and this is Story, he says, how easily men satisfy themselves that the Constitution is exactly what they wish it to be. So Story was concerned that judges, if you interpret too broadly, then they're adding in their prejudices into the Constitution. As the case of uh, separation of church and state. Which is a concept which you'll never, you'll never see mentioned. It's not in the Constitution. Uh, it's not. It doesn't even exist, and everybody's personal opinions were, the judge's personal opinions about their faith was interjected, and, uh, and there we have the outcome because it was a hierarchy there that I believe, and I would love to talk this on another on another night, but in the case of church and state, it's church from state, and right. the hierarchy was superior. Our faith comes first, then the state. So, once again, the state has no right. So why would it be of higher hierarchy than our faith? Therefore, our faith should be expressed however the majority wishes it be expressed in any place, at any time, whether it's public or not. And yet... The, the courts didn't side that way they, in the school prayer in the school prayer case. Well, those things. Everybody, what the First Amendment says, and the First Amendment. This is the first sentence of the First Amendment, which is the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights. It says the Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So there you go. That's the first clause of the Constitution. So by denying school prayer, you're denying the free expression of free exercise thereof. <laughs> right there, and yet they ignored it. They ignored the first lines. Now. That didn't imply that because it was occurring in public schools that it was sanctioned or funded by the government because they run the public school. No, man. I'm sorry. Each and every person uh, prayed in their own way. It was a mo- it was actually a moment of silence, right? Or did you actually have a prayer? No, I was. I came in '66. By then, the it was case, already gone. Yeah. Yeah. So I we just had ha- the pledge of allegiance. No, but you guys had a, uh, a moment of silence because I had a moment of silence in the '70s. I had a moment of silence. We just prayed no, to whoever. We, the... I went to a Jesuit high school, so they were just, you know. Oh, so you, that's right. You were never in public school. What up? Yeah, I, yeah. So you were not covered by the First Amendment at a Jesuit school. He was another, just another. I was just in high school. He was just another you snob. So a couple quick observations. The First Amendment applies to the federal government, 
as the Ten Amendments of the Bill of Rights were written, these are limitations on what the federal government can do. And uh, here I wanted to point out that it took the Civil War and it took the 14th Amendment before we realized that we had to protect against the states because the states were getting away with all kinds of problems and things that, that had to be corrected. That was the Civil War was fought over. So it was through the 14th Amendment that we started applying the protections in the Bill of Rights to limit the states. So it's not just today. The First Amendment doesn't just apply to the federal government. It applies to the state governments as well. But getting back to this fundamental notion of what is the structure of the Constitution, I want to read you from Justice White. So I read you earlier from Rehnquist, who was a Biden old conservative. I'm going to read you now from Justice White, who was a Kennedy appointee. So what does Kennedy, I'm sorry, what does White have to say? White says that the Constitution is not a deed setting for precise meets and bounds. And it's an English language or you know, coming from England. Constitution is not a roadmap that gives you the specifications on property boundaries. Uh, so he's describing instead, rather, it is a document announcing fundamental principles in value-laden terms that leave ample scope for the exercise of normative judgment by judges. And, and that's going to be a good a little bit of a critique, since he laid out very succinctly uh, the original position of Scalia. I'm going to give you a, the critique of that position, then I'll give you Breyer's position, and we can critique Breyer's position. But uh, here, what I want to point out is that uh, the, those who argue with and disagree with the, the position of Scalia will, will argue the following. They'll say, what, what happens when Scalia wants to look and see what was the thinking and what did the words mean in 1787 when the Constitution was written? He wants to know what was the original interpretation. So these are some of the problems that present themselves, number one, and, and which pr approach deals with these problems better. And sometimes I think one may be better than the other, depending upon the particular situation. So these are some of the issues that come into play. First of all, what if there is no relevant historical material to try to answer a question? Uh, second issue can be, you know, why not just ask historians? If, if the issue is only going to boil down to what did the founders mean, what was the intent of the founders in 1787? And remember, the founders were basically 38 white men. Uh, there were a handful of Catholics, but the vast majority of them were, were Protestants. And that's not good or bad. That's just what it was. Why not just ask historians if the job of the Supreme Court is to make decisions to interpret the Constitution? Why do you need judges in the first place? This is the critique. Why don't you just have nine historians on the Supreme Court? So some would argue that the purpose of judges is judgment, not just looking to see what a term meant in 1787. Uh, some would also point out that the Constitution wasn't just written by the founders. It was then ratified by those state conventions, right? And there were hundreds of delegates to those conventions. And uh, I go through all these materials all the time. And uh, you have different opinions between different founders. In fact, you have founders who in 1787 think one thing and years later think something else. So the founders often change their mind depending upon what position and what argument they're trying to make. So when we talk about what is the original intent, what is the original founding uh, understanding, uh, sometimes uh, it depends which historian you ask, by the way, and what materials you're looking at on a given date. So what do you think uh, Scalia would uh, do when he needed to get a better perspective of what their original intent was? Did he just listen to and read up on... You read up on the history. In other words, they, the notes of each justice when they heard other cases that were similar. Yep.
Those are the things that a legislator should consider. ahead and I'm 
ask if either of you have been to the, the Lincoln Memorial in Edmond. And Manny, you may know what I'm going to read now. And I'm sort of uh, being a little, uh, uh, I'll be careful saying it, but uh, you know, people say it's got taken out of context. Uh, but there's a famous quote by Jefferson, which is in the Lincoln Memorial, and it's in panel four on the wall in the, in the Lincoln Yeah, I've been there, and I would love to have remembered. Which one is that? I don't remember. Oh, okay. No, that was Woodrow Wilson. Well, what I would say to Jefferson is that there is progress in science, in technology, in the making of wool and linen and for clothes. But I would say there's no progress in human nature. Human nature is the same. Do we just get better or we get worse? We probably get worse, but I would say it's the same in the year 3000, uh, 1000 BC when David was king of Israel and uh, was zero B, uh, when Jesus uh, had his ministry and 1776 and 2019. The human nature doesn't change. Uh, it doesn't progress. Science and technology progress. Business practices progress. But anything that has to do with morality doesn't progress and may even get worse. So I would say Jefferson is wrong on that issue. If he meant. If he meant, well, I don't know. Yeah, I would if say there's no, meant that we there's should no all... progress in the human mind. There, there, There's progress in science. There's progress in technology. There's progress in how you make the clothes and so on. But the human nature is the same throughout the 3,000 years and uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, you know. I think that the lust, greed, lust for power, that they're the, they're, they're the same. They're, we're not getting better in that sense. Let me wrap it up because we're running out of time. And yep. I'll tell you a Scalia story next time. And Scalia would also point to Article Five. He'd say, we, if, if you don't use, and I think he would agree that there is no perfect approach. So right. He'd say that look at Article Five. If you don't like what the founders would have understood, then fix it and amend it. Quote here from Scalia. So, this is a recent opinion from Scalia uh, before he passed away. And he says, quote, I have no problem with applying ancient values as they were understood at the time to new modern circumstances. Originalism, which is the name of his approach, originalism doesn't mean that the radio is not covered by the First Amendment. Scalia goes on to say, but what originalism suggests is that as to those phenomena that existed at the time, the understanding of the society as to what the Constitution prohibited at the time subsists. So you know, he wants to use that understanding, the original understanding, and continue with it today. And uh, I think maybe one of the points to 
don't just think of minority and majority as the, the house that's in, in power today, but uh, there are certain protections, built-in protections for minority rights that the Constitution recognizes. There are certain things that Congress cannot do, and the First Amendment is a perfect example. That there are certain things you can uh, take away the franchise from people from the standpoint of that for the democracy to work, you have to have certain underlying protections and provisions and rules of the game which are set forth in the structure of the Constitution. Well, it's it's either that or it's not that. And that's always been the case. It's always been the issue of, do you agree with Ed that, you know, the human nature never changes, or do you believe in the, the adage that we should evolve and we should aim high always? And that's so subjective because everybody's interests are so different. I, I agree with Ed. I think the human nature... And the motivations be uh, uh, from wrongdoing have, have been the same from year one to certainly since King David. <laughs> Say it again. Certainly since King David, yeah, we've been uh, the same. Uh, how do you feel about that, Adam? Do you think? Uh, what's your opinion? Do you think we should have a living, broad, uh, basically? Are you are you lean towards Rehnquist or Breyer? So I'm going to not answer by answering yeah. this way. That you can't just look at back to the Declaration of Independence. Yes. So I would argue you can't just look at the Constitution. In fact, I have a great quote for you. The Constitution is step two. The Constitution is putting into effect, right, the, the system. The wishes of, uh, of independence. Yeah, the Declaration. The Declaration of Independence. So here, here's the quote I want to read you, if I can find where I put it. That um, the Declaration, this is the quote, the Declaration is from a Chief Justice. I just don't know which one. But the Declaration is the promise. The Constitution is the fulfillment. Right. So I think you have to look at the Declaration and remember what the Declaration says, uh, probably the most famous words of the Declaration, is we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which, as we know, are not defined. That's the job of the judges to flesh out what, the, what those terms mean. Uh, so the, I think that you look at not just the Constitution, I think you look at the Declaration, and then I, I somewhat agree with Breyer that you can look at history, but there are other practical, pragmatic things that you may also want to look at. And I think to a certain extent, Scalia understood that as well. He wasn't simply looking at... Okay, but then you get those issues. Here's a perfect example why I think it doesn't hold water. I'm more uh, likely to agree with Ed. If it, if it wasn't for the, that evolutionary thought, you can see how an amendment to the Constitution to prohibit the consumption of alcohol could come before us and voted upon based on fancy. And then you can also see our original document where we acknowledge that a black man is a three-fifths of a white man. Where does that stuff come from? I mean, it's bastardized thought. And it comes from that philosophy that we should evolve. And quite frankly, something gets lost there. Um, these things do happen, and it's the insanity of a mob that's usually the problem. Um, you, we yeah, uh, Alan, uh, Adam. The other uh, other point that I would make is that the idea of the living Constitution comes uh, not only from the Supreme Court, or, or just from, or even from the Supreme Court. It really comes from Woodrow Wilson, who was a political scientist, a university president, a governor, then president, and he had this whole idea that. He rebelled against Madison. Madison wanted checks and balances in the federal system. He thought, and he was uh, writing around 1890, 1880s, 
that he wanted government to be more active, more uh, involved in things. And so that, the, that, that tradition, the Breyer tradition, really has another side, a more authoritarian uh, tradition of government. And, so, as opposed and also to, social engineering. Yeah, social engineering, limited government, the social gospel on the uh, Protestant side. And, uh, you know, that's a whole, that's the, the progressive era which is really backs up the, the Breyer is part of, and that's a it's a very authoritarian, uh, anti-limited government. An anti-liberty, right? Anti-liberty, and really it's 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 anti-liberty, but and in favor of what expertise? Have experts run the government, and that gives us what the administrative state. Which now we're which back is, to full circle. You go back to Plato. Plato said the government should be run by the experts, not by these dumb Democrats who just executed my teacher Socrates, and that was in the year uh, 400 BC. So, it, we, our our human nature has not progressed or improved. If it's it's progressed, it's regressed. Uh, in the last 3,000 years. And it, it's a time of David. It was also the time of the Ro- Trojan Wars. Uh, the you know, Iliad and the, uh, and the Odyssey were uh, held, happened around that time. So I would say in those 3,000 years, there's been no progress in human nature. A case closed, Adam, I think. I we, would say, well. pointing out that we have covered the period 400 B.C. in Plato. Yep. Now we've covered uh, several thousand years, and I, I don't think there's a better system than the Constitution we have. Yep. And let me just quote, because that is exactly dead on, that, that quote of this concept of a living Constitution comes from Woodrow Wilson's book called The Constitutional Government in the United States, and the sentence is as follows. He wrote, living political constitutions must be Darwinian in structure and in practice. And uh, we'll continue the conversation Ugh. in future, future. Only Woodrow would throw Darwin he's a, in there. He's that kind of a guy. Wow. All right. Well, one thank of, you. One of these nights, we'll figure this out. Eagles, nineteen seventy-five. Thank you very much, Adam. Thank you.